Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. And on today's show, we meet two groups whose music is very different, but who are both massively successful in the 1970s and the 1980s, and are still playing live today to very happy audiences across London and the UK. The Bay City Rollers sold over 120 million records worldwide and had multiple number one hit records in the UK, America, Australia and Germany. Cool and the gang initially were called the Jazziacs, but soon adopted the name we all know and had multiple hits including Ladies Night, Too Hot, Get Down On It, Joanna and Cherish. So first then to the Bay City Rollers, whose fortunes kicked up massively when they recruited Les McEwen as lead vocalist and frontman. I asked him to take us back to his school days. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. Primary school was very good. Good boy, I attended non-stop. Mrs Simmons was a great teacher. She was my teacher all the way through primary school. Went back to see her just a few years ago. She's still there. Went to secondary school, was a bit disenfranchised. Got into, didn't like the academic stuff, the English, the maths and all that stuff because the teachers were absolute devils. And... Um, I got into sort of hands-on things like pottery, art, metalwork, woodwork, that kind of thing, which I excelled at at school. Um, and then uh, I got this urge, well, I'd had an urge for a long time to leave school and, and do what I want to do, which is sing in a band. I learnt that from my mum. She was What a age sing- were you at this point where you thought, well, sing in a band's what I want to do? Five. Oh, really young? Yeah. I mean, like tiny. Yeah, when, since I can remember singing, I want to be a fireball, do, 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 do. <laughs> My brother got me to sing that in a, a little real real thing. I can't remember. Bush Did you realise at that age you had a voice? I mean, you could actually yeah, sing and hold I a think, note. Yeah, I could, because my mum was a, a falsetto, or a lead falsetto in the Belfast Women's Choir. She, choir, she used to sing around the house all the time, and I was lucky. I was the baby of four brothers, so I got a lot of extra time with mum. And so I kind of picked up the habit. It was like a habit I picked up. She would sing, I would sing. And so it became natural. And so I became like the singing paper boy, the singing milk boy, you know, with my horse and cart. Can you imagine going along going, smoke on the water? <laughs> you singing deep purple ones that are bringing the milk. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it could be deep purple, all right now, which were all big hits at that which time. Free, yeah, no, fantastic. So you're doing all this and you're at school. And then did you go to college? No, I didn't. I was invited to leave school just after my 50th birthday, which was the best thing the school system ever done for me. I joined a band called Threshold, met Alan Longmuir. He was a friend of John Wright, the bass player in Threshold. And um, I wouldn't know that years later I would be in Alan's band, the Bass City Rollers, but that's how it ended up. So you joined uh, the Bass City Rollers about 1973, but they've been going since 1964 in various guises. Yep. The Edinburgh scene can't have been that huge. I guess you must have been aware of that. Yeah, band. yeah, everybody was aware of the Bass City Rollers, and, and, and it was great when they were having success in 1973, and sorry, 1971, but then they didn't have any other success after that, and they were kind of like, well, Bass City Rollers, but we'll, we'll one-hit wonder you know, one-hit wonder band from Edinburgh, and then they became a little bit of a, yeah, like, frowned upon slightly, because they, they weren't successful, they should be, because they're from Scotland. So their singer got disillusioned with all the flops that we were having, and um, he left, and I had the Saturday night slot in the main discotheque in Edinburgh called the Americana at Fountain Bridge. And Tom Payton, the manager of the Basic Rolls, and Eric Faulkner, the guitarist of the Basic Rolls, came to see me. I noticed them right away, but I noticed the old guy right away because they were young kids. But 
and which he's, which he's staring at sort of thing. And um, they came to see me and Paddy Riley was the manager of the place so we went into Paddy's office and he was like, oh, what, why don't you want to talk to Leslie about and all that stuff? And so, yeah, we're on blah, blah, blah. We've lost a singer, we'd like you to offer you the job. It's 10 pound a week and all the cigarettes you can smoke sort of thing. And uh, so I said, yeah, I thought about it. I had a sort of part-time job. How long did you think about it? Well, I had a part-time job as an engineer, well, T-boy, wanting to be an engineer in the studio, work my way up in the studio, or learn all about it. So I went to um, talk with, uh, oh, I forget his name now, a really nice guy who was the boss of that studio. And I'd been out helping him mic up the choirs at churches and stuff. So um, he just put it down to, well, what are you earning now with your own band? Well, not a lot. In fact, it's costing money. And what are they offering? I said, 10 pound a week, you know, the cigarettes I can smoke. Well, it's simple, isn't it? <laughs> So it's a financial decision, yeah, basically. Yeah. Why not? Uh, well, he also thrown in. They've got their own equipment. They've got their own roadie. They've got their own gigs. They got, you know, all the things that a professional band should have, and they've got it. You go in there, and you're a professional singer. And that's how you joined. And little do they know about what was going to happen next. Podcast radio. At this point, the band had modest success, but when you joined, things started to change. How quickly did it start to change? The big change in what we were doing, so when I was in the band from 18th of November 1973, we had all these bookings and working men's clubs and, you know, quite, you know, places that looked unhygienic sort of thing. That's all the way I can describe it. In Scotland or throughout the UK? And and mainly in Scotland, but there was big trips into the Netherlands, which we called England. You know, the song and that the band had a hit with, Keep On Dancing, was still remembered and the promoters would book that, ah, oh, Keep On Dancing and the Basic Rollers and yeah, all that It was that a stuff. top ten hit. So yeah, hit. so they had a little bit of uh, clout that way. But um, the big change happened, and I can't... I was trying to remember on these recent interviews which band didn't turn up for Cracker Jack to record their section. And it could have been Slade. They could have been stuck in an American airport or something. Yeah. Uh, but we were available and we got the opportunity to be on Cracker Jack. So this is Cracker Jack, 5 to 5, BBC school, One school, with school Leslie girls, Crowther. Yeah, school girls, school boys, all watching that. Everybody watched Cracker Jack. Our ideal audience. So you it, went on Cracker Jack? They couldn't have set it up better. Fantastic. So we went on Cracker Jack and within days the record was in the charts and it was climbing, climbing, climbing and there were little girls turning up at working men's clubs at 11 o'clock at night with furious parents saying, what the hell are you doing here? And all that kind of stuff. Very soon after, the dance hall, the pally, the dances and all that kind of stuff, we started to play them at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, maybe even 7 o'clock. And that that slow transition from working men's clubs at 12 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock gigs took, took effect. And then there was the grabbing on the stage and the, the pulling and then there was barriers and then there was security hired and then there was pushed back a little bit and the mania kept growing and growing by every gig. It was like, it was like a, it was like influenza. But that, in a good way. <laughs> in a in good, good way, way. Yeah. But that Cracker Jack thing is interesting because playing to working men's clubs, you've been playing to an adult audience. Yeah. You went on Cracker Jack and suddenly all of the UK's kids are watching yeah. that. Was that really what made you into a teeny band? I think so. I think we clicked in, that, in all those days of gloom and doom. It was austere, black. When I think about, we had the three-day week with yeah, the minus. When I strike. look at it, I yeah. see it through the lens of an old black and white TV. Almost, it's yeah. like 
and wind and horrible, you know, not a lot of food going around and all that kind of stuff and bad stuff at restaurants and or wimpy bars and just wimpy bars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, no one remember those apart yeah, from you and me now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just not the best that a human being could do or achieve. But that was the world back then, wasn't it? Really for everybody. And I think maybe the basic rules were a, a ray of sunshine for the kids who yeah. were living in that gloom. You were bright, you were happy, you yeah. were fun, nice sing-along songs, danceable songs. Yeah. Catchy. Good-looking boys. Yeah, good-looking boys. Well, I was. Good-looking boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're the most good-looking. The other guys weren't so bad. <laughs> but you're the front man, of course. Of course. Yeah. But everybody had their fans, you know, the, the, we spread it around. We made a point of doing that, telling the TV directors, let try and get as much, you know, so there's lots of times you'll see a band, another band, you might see this the camera on the singer all the time when he's singing, and then go to a, a guitar fret when the guitar's playing. But with the basic rules, you'll notice that there's face shots of all the guys. Okay, it's mainly me because I'm doing the singing, but it, it is on purpose. It wasn't left to their whim. I mean, you were the leader, but it was a band. It, it really was, was a, band. a band. Yeah, and that's what band. we wanted to project. Yeah. Uh, we did. They all played their own instruments, even though they didn't play in the records, the first record. But they did play. They were an accomplished band. Uh, but that was quite common back then to save money in the studios and. When also. you when you joined the band, were they playing their instruments then? Or oh yeah, not? yeah, they, they were, were at that point. Yeah, they were, but they not were. in the early days. No, but they they they, they, they the, the producer had his stable of session guys that he knew that I'll get this X, Y, and Z and I'll be finished this, these five songs that I've composed in six hours. Right. That's going to cost me, you know, 10 grand or something. Yeah. So it's a financial transaction. It costs yeah. you tuppence now. Right. But um, and that's the reason. It's not just the basic rollers that, that happened with. Sweet, mud, you name it, you know. Maybe not people like... Uh, T-Rex and stuff, maybe not there because they were coming in as singer-songwriter kind of type, more power to them. But with the other bands, like the bands that I just mentioned, they would have their records made for them and then they would go out and uh, reproduce that, yeah. which wasn't uncommon, although it was embarrassing for the musicians who had to tolerate that happening. I never ever had butterflies, never ever had stage fright or anything that people talk about. I've no idea what it is, because I can't wait to get on the stage. So you're a naturally confident person and you love the stage. Though. Absolutely. I'm more confident on stage than I am in normal life, probably, because I know what I'm, I'm about to do. I have the ability and I have the confidence to do it, to deliver. And when, when you saw the basic rollers on TV, they had a certain charisma. I mean, the way you guys looked in the camera, maybe, do you think that confidence you had maybe helped the rest of the band? Because the band definitely changed. When you joined as vocalist, yeah. the band's fortunes improved massively. Yeah, they did. And also, if you look at pictures of the band prior to when I was there, they had, like, five-piece suits on and stuff like that, and bow ties, and it was very cabaret. Um, and so a radical change had to happen, and part of that was also the clothes. And, uh, so this is the Scottish tartan, the trousers, Well, actually, the if you look at the... I don't have a CD handy, but if you look at the pictures they've used on this Basic Roar Gold album, the front cover, only, I think, Derek's wearing a, just a normal shirt you would have bought from whatever a normal shirt... Um, CNA? CNA, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, CNA, of course, yeah. You know, like a lumberjack shirt. Yeah, yeah. Nobody else has got any tartan on. And if you open it up and on the... Uh, on the front of uh, disc number two is also there's all the 
I think Eric wearing uh, a scarf. So our memory is slightly distorted. Yeah, that's right. Because you, didn't, you didn't all wear the tartan all the time. With the original tartan. Okay. Until I think it could have been even after Bye Bye Baby, that late. Or it could have been just before Bye Bye Baby. So was it the fans that drove it? It was the fans that drove that fashion. The, there used to be a, a, a style in the UK where there was uh, maybe blue jeans with black striped down the side, or a, they would stripe. This was a normal thing that you would see occasionally in shops like CNA. We just changed that to tartan. And we made the tartan kind of cowboy, it's a cowboy design, mm -hmm. cowboy shirt design, but it's tartan. And that is what helped the basic rolls become so identifiable and so exportable across the world. People in Australia, oh, Scotland, we know about this. Tartan, yeah. we buy that, we buy from Scotland, and they all wear the tartan with the wee short trousers. You know, so everybody wants to claim they've got a percentage of Scottish in them some, suddenly. Big, huge in Canada, we tour Canada many times. And of course, America is also likes to think it's got a, a, a connection to Scotland. Look at, uh, and there it was, it was plain yeah, to see. And, and we, the fans, of course, were incredibly loyal. I mean, they fans did dress up head did. to toe in time. Yeah, they identified with us. And there was a period in 1975 in the UK when we were six weeks at number one with Bye Bye Baby and then Give a Little Love. And we were touring during that time. And without a lie, every single little town we passed through, we could see gangs and gangs of people dressed up just like us. Must have been an amazing feeling. It was uh, uncanny. Yeah, it must have been quite, quite uh, humbling, I guess, Yeah, as well. it was like weird. Yeah. It was like, wow. <laughs> now, you mentioned Bye Bye Baby there. I mean, six weeks of number one. It sold a million records. Your first number one, a huge, huge hit. This was the one that absolutely made you into that nailed superstars. It. Yeah, nailed it. That was the one. Bye Bye Baby was the, the the ultimate for the basic rollers. It was six weeks at number one, and that was followed up shortly thereafter when I give a little love. People must have been fed up with the basic rollers on the top of the number one spot. But during that time, we had a, a tour going on. We were passing through all the little towns, Louth, you know, Kirkcaldy, you know, I don't know, Spalding, Norfolk, wherever we were. It was a sea of tartan. That was the ultimate kind of mania point, I think. Well, at this point, people started saying, you know, you're the biggest band since the Beatles. You were outselling everybody. I mean, six weeks was a huge run at number one. You were on top of the pops multiple times. You were all over the radio. You couldn't get away from the Bay City Rollers. You, you were literally a sensation. It was a roller mania. A roller mania, a tartan roller mania. Yeah, just like Beatlemania. You must have felt a different. Good. How did it feel as being part of that? Oh, of course, it makes you feel great, doesn't it, really, to be what you perceive to be appreciated for being you and doing what you do. And that's really what was happening. But, you know, no need to take that to, you know, to heart, if you're not, not to make your not head big. Not to make your head go too big, right? It was just absolutely brilliant to, to be in that position to say, I'm not in a position to say I'm getting paid because I didn't even know if I was getting paid at that time but <laughs> um, uh, I'm going out there to a whole sea of loveliness yeah it must have been and, and also you are bringing a lot of loveliness to them too yeah yeah it is you know, a, a two-way street of course yeah, it is yeah. one can't live without the other so it's a it was a great feeling and it still is to this day that's what's strange about it it's till this day what motivates me is that feeling when you hear that record, it still has that same effect because it is an uplifting, happy record and very melodic too. Yeah, but listen to the words. It's 
pretty sad. It, the words are sad, but the feeling is it, very it's uplifting. Happy, yeah. and, it, and it's got that sort of um, sing-along quality. Oh, I, I definitely got a sing-along quality. I end the uh, show with Shang Lang, which everybody goes bananas to. And then do, you do the false end sort of thing. And then it's, uh, we want more. And then you come on and you tell them that's the only way you can say goodbye. And it's, it's this way. And then you start drinking if you... And that's it. Oh, you know. Actually, I hadn't even thought of that. It's actually your encore is already made for you, isn't it? It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's your biggest song yeah. and it says bye-bye. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> you couldn't have written it. You couldn't have made it up better, no. Did you think we want this now to last a long time? Or were you aware that at some point it might not? Well, it's kind of strange because it almost seemed... To us, that it was a long time coming to get to number one. Although it wasn't really. It was like, what, 14 months? That can, for yeah. a young person, that's yeah. a long time. it's forever, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we finally made it. But then the pressure was on, wasn't it? Is your, is your next song going to be number one? Mm. And so are you going to have to make a number one, you know, all the time? Did you thing? get pressure from the record company? I think the other guys go, I didn't feel the pressure so much because you would have the record company, Dick Leahy, would be pressuring the manager maybe, and the manager might be pressuring the producer or the songwriters. So it was going around that world. It wasn't touching me. I'm happy, go lucky, on the stage, have, having a good time. <laughs> you go under pressure if you like. But so it didn't pre pressure me, I didn't really... I, I thought these things were kind of almost on tap. There was lots of great writers in the world, lots of great producers in the world. What your, or my, our managements would need to choose the right one. The risk is you do something that's similar because that's a recipe that works. It, 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 that is a recipe that works. And it worked during 74 with similar records from Phil Coulter and Bill Martin. Remember, it's similar to Summer Love Sensation, which is similar in a way to Shang Lang, old Shang Lang is the best. And similar to All of Me Loves All of You, those could be, maybe with the exclusion of Shang Lang, remember, Summer Love Sensation, All of Me Loves All of You, could be almost the same chord structure. Right. In fact, they are. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Shang Lang was different in the way, in some other way. I don't know what it is, but that is the, the nectar of basic rollers for me, is Shang Lang, not Bye Bye Baby. I love Summer Love Sensation, a great, happy kind of, although it wasn't the hottest summer, I think, was, was it 76 was a hot summer, 76 was yeah. a very hot summer, yeah, we it, had a long, long yeah. summer, right through July and but, August. But coming from Scotland, any summer is a glorious time of the year. If you year. get above 20 degrees, you're very happy. Yeah, well, I think we got 21 and a half. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and Summer Love Sensation, again, if you listen to it, we... we um, What's some love sensation? Go like, I'm trying to remember it. I'm trying to sing All of Me Loves All of You because it's so similar. Sometimes I've actually made the mistake and started singing one rather than the other. But it's all very uplifting lyrics in it. Great chorus to sing along with. Great smashing drums and guitars. It's just basic Roarland. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. You uh, were huge in the UK, but you were unusual too in that you were extremely successful in the US. I mean, you had the number one record in the US and not many bands ever, ever achieved that. So what do you think it was that enabled you to get to be so big in the US? Oh, I reckon it was the singer Liz McCure. Well, of no. course, <laughs> apart from the singer Liz McCure. I mean, you're clearly an important part of it. Oh, yeah. Of course. Uh, 
It was, um, it was, if I can remember rightly, it was after Christmas, it was New Year, and we we kind of almost thought, oh yeah, yeah, they're going to release a record, that's really great, but pff, has it really got any, you know, is it really going to, because Slade, Sweet, everybody had come back with a tail between their legs, didn't make, Couldn't it. make it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we didn't really think it was going to, have legs. So you went to the US thinking probably you might not be successful. Well, we thought it's going to be a struggle. A struggle. It's a big work. place. It's a big country. Yeah. yeah. You can't just sort of tour America. And then, can you? and then out the blue, it was you got to get your to America because you're roaring up the charts. So Arista Records, Clive Davis, God, Private Jet, London. I think it was Heathrow, off to America, and they had arranged us to go on. Oh, that's. I'm trying to remember his name. He, he was a some kind of sports commentator, Howard Cosell, and they had copied uh, the guy that took over the Beatles. I forget his name. But in, you know, hi, ladies and gentlemen, America from England. It's the Beatles. What was his name? Him, American guy, black and white TV. So this chap, they had us come over, do a little bit of rehearsal for the cameras, and then they would build a big tartan box with a big ribbon. And he went, oh, from, from, because, oh, US, uh, please do, I'm from Barney, Scotland. It's a base, City Rollers. And of course, the ribbon, thing by S A T U R. you know, we were out there. And by a couple of weeks, it was number one. So climbing the charts in America, someone must have picked it up on radio and started playing it. Do you know how that started? I don't know the, uh, the genesis of that exactly, or how Clive Davis and his publicity would have maybe manipulated that to his favour or our favour. But I do remember that what I forgot to tell you was prior to it being released, we did a satellite broadcast from LW to London Weekend Television. Oh, to the US? To the US with all, if you remember, they almost put our fans in cages in a kind of way. And it was mayhem and we were running out and it was all trying to grab us and stuff like that. And we were singing Saturday Night and other songs. And that got beamed to America. I think it, it might not be the first time such an event it's was It's unusual, beamed. though, for a, for a special to be made in but, London then beamed yeah, to the US. Yeah. Very unusual. And that's what made it sort of special. And maybe caused American um, people who watch TV to say, oh, that's interesting. I'll watch that. You know, what's all that about? The other thing is, I think it's back to your tartan and your, your image. Yeah. You know, sweet, slate, great bands, good yeah. songs. But what was special about them? You had something special. We you had, came from Bonnie Scotland. Uh, and we had that unique, very unique look. It, was, it wasn't just a different colour, three-quarter length coat or something like that, like maybe people would wear or some glitter. <laughs> this was different. And it was normal as well. Tartan was quite common. But... Uh, we had used it in that kind of way and we had the little short kind of trousers with the stripy socks and the Adidas on. Uh, it just, I think people were, oh, aren't they cute? I'll buy their record. Well, that's <laughs> the point. You also, you were cute. I mean, you think about Slade and uh, uh, Sweet. They weren't, yeah, cute. they weren't cute. You, you were cute yeah. and they weren't. They were a bit kind of like, you know, don't leave your daughter with me. <laughs> Whereas you could take them home for tea and they'd be very happy. Yeah, we, we would come tea in the afternoon, no problem. I remember we went to some airport, it might have been JFK, and then we got in a helicopter and we flew into the city right to where we were going to be performing. And then we sort of came out of whatever that place is we landed and, and we kind of come up the steps and there was like just a huge 
amphitheatre of fans all going crazy with little tartan things on an it. An American accent. Yeah, an American accent. Oh, you're so cute. Can you just say something? Say something in English. Yeah, yeah. could you say something? Could you say it again? <laughs> and were the fans in America different to the ones in the UK or were they just the same? I don't know. I think we got a kind of feeling of um, we were adopted by America. Whereas in the UK, we felt like we were grown here. If you, does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they, they obviously adopted you and took them into their hearts. Yeah, yeah, hearts. yeah, it did. But it's, it's also um, kind of like had a, we had an, an affinity with Australia and strangely enough for Japan. Yes, you were big in Australia. Oh, yeah, I'm going back there every year now for 45 years. Yeah, I mean, they loved you in Australia. I mean, I mean again, and also... And they'll ja be loving me again. They will, of course. In, in August 2020. And Japan, and also Germany, but different songs were hits in those countries. Yeah, different appeal, different appeal. I don't know if that was just the record company people who uh, the songs appealed to, and then they chose it because they were directors for that market. So we, we, you can't find out because you can't rerun that as a scientific test. It, that's what I always thought. I always thought they picked the wrong songs. But the songs they did pick were good. Yeah, I mean, choosing like a song. It's a game. It's a game. You, you never really know, of course, to you, and it's easy yeah. to be wise after the event. I mean, take a song that I've always got a problem with, um, written by Eric Faulkner, and was a hit when we were at the height of our stardom, if you know what I mean. That was Money Honey. Now, Money Honey is nothing like any other song we, do, we, we, we did prior to that. And it's a good song in itself when you're listening to it. It's a slightly kind of funny, almost strange kind of beat, but compared to the other shuffle-type beats that the bass at Rose play. And no matter what I try and do with it, what tempo I play it, play it, it never really reaches the crowd. It's such a, a strange song to play live. But on that record, it works really well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fine. I don't play it live for no, that reason. No, it doesn't work, yeah. No. You've um, had tremendous success from 73 to 76. I mean, you really were the hottest thing in pop for those three, four years. And then obviously... Oh, fabulous of you to say well, so. You were, you were, you were, you were, you're the hottest thing in pop. But obviously, you know, uh, you can't keep going The other going guys forever. were okay as well. You can't keep going forever. <laughs> but you have had various reunions. Yeah. Do you think you'll get back together again? I think it's ran its course. I, I had these romantic dreams of, well, you know, put all the bad stuff behind you. I've done it. You can do it, you know, just... Because there have been a few issues, haven't yeah, there, yeah, without yeah. going into detail. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, let's do it for the fans. If not, you know, for yourself, let's do it for fans, but also for the money. Of course. There's a huge thing that we could do here. I've got a record. This is what I told them in 2015. Uh, I've got a record that I've done. It's all finished. It's ready to go. It, it sounds like the 70s. It could be the basic Ross next record. You just have to agree, sign there, and you all get an equal percent between the four of you. Or you need, maybe we'll get a picture, we could even compile a picture from old pictures. We could do something. You just need to sign that and, and make it happen. Maybe turn up at the, the gig. We get other musicians to play if you can't play or if you're unable to play, or if you want to play, you, could, you don't so have you to play. you wouldn't rule it out completely? <laughs> you wouldn't rule it out completely? No, I wouldn't. All right, Les, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you for your time yeah. and continued success. And you look amazing, by the way, oh, if thanks. I may say. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. Les McEwen of the Bay City Rollers. And if you check online, you'll probably find them playing in London somewhere near you. 
Next, to Cool and the Gang and their founder and leader, who's been with them since the start in 1964, Robert Cool Bell, who told me how the band was formed from a bunch of school friends. Yeah, actually, grammar school and high school. Uh, how did that happen? Well, um, let me start off. My brother and I, we are, we're from Youngstown, Ohio. And our family, we moved to uh, Jersey City in 1960. And then 1964, we met some of the uh, original members of the band back in the day through grammar school and high school. That was uh, Mr. George Brown, Dennis Thomas, uh, and then Spike Mickens, uh, and then later came uh, uh, Charles Smith, uh, of course, Ricky West, and that was our, our first group. We call ourselves the Jazziacs. And then we got involved with um, an organization called, uh, called Soul Town. And Soul Town was trying to be like Motown. So we became the Soul Town Band. Right. And we had to learn all these songs, all these Motown hits. You know, we'd do we'd about six or seven artists uh, on the shows. And we, most of them would be singing Motown hits, some James Brown stuff, but mostly uh, Motown. And how did you feel about doing just covers at that point? Well, we were just uh, young. I mean, we was coming out of grammar and high school, you know. It was just you were great. just kids? Yeah, yeah, we were just kids. We didn't know where things were going to go from that point, but, uh, you know, we loved the music. And at that young age, uh, like my brother and even myself, we were into jazz. My brother loved John Coltrane, a spiker. Uh, loved Miles Davis and Freddie Hubbard. I used to listen to uh, Ron Carter and uh, uh, Reggie Workman, all those guys that was with, with the Jazz Crusaders. And then uh, we moved on to now backing up. See, well, my thing, although I, I, I was into the different jazz artists, we were um, uh, backing up these artists that were singing Motown hits. So I was kind of like out there hanging out too. You the only skin deep, my girl, you know, all that stuff, you know. You're listening to Podcast Radio. The band went through lots of different names though, didn't it? You started as the Jazzy Axe, but it was quite an evolution before we became cool and the gang. Yeah. Well, I started with the uh, Jazzy Axe, and then of course the Soul Town Band, when we was playing the Motown records. And then it went to. Cool in the Flames. When we left the Soul Town organization, we became Cool in the Flames. And of course, uh, James Brown was definitely uh, a lot of inspiration to us. And at that time, it was James Brown and the Famous Flames. So you were worried about confusion or a legal suit? We just didn't have no problem with the Godfather, so. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't going to mess with James Brown. <laughs> so, so we said, well, what can we call ourselves? So. We went home one day, we had a manager by the name of Gene Red, and we thought of a lot of different names. All the names we came back with wasn't working. So I don't know if it was Gene or one of the other guys in the band, but Gene was one of our first managers. He said, well, why don't we just call it Cool in the Gang? Oh, okay, that sounds interesting, Cool in the Gang. Because, it's as easy as that. Yeah, just as easy as that. And your, your real name is Robert Bell, so where did the cool come from then, Cool? Cool is my nickname. When I uh, came to Jersey City, uh, before there was a cool in the gang, I was cool. I was hanging out, you know, trying to fit into the neighborhood. You know, it was a little rough neighborhood. Oh, so you could fit into the neighborhood, so you had a slightly cooler name. Like, yeah, so yeah. Cool. yeah. I said, well, there was a guy also named Cool. He spelled his name with a C. I said, I'm going to spell mine with a K. Okay. 
Okay, which is uh, distinctive, yes. And that's so how, that was Cool and the Gang in yeah. 1969. So then you signed with Delight Records. Right. We, we, uh, we, we worked on the first album uh, through 68, and then we came out with our very first... Actually, we introduced ourselves to the business in 1969. Cool and the Gang, album Cool and the Gang, single Cool and the Gang. Right. And a lot of people thought we were the Spanish band. <laughs> right. And we were running around the city, oh, that's our music. That's our music, you know? Listen, we're on the radio. <laughs> but then, uh, you know that record went top 40 pop? The record Cool and the Gang? Top 40, yes. Yeah. yeah. And it was more of a, we did sound like a Spanish band, there were no singers. Oh, right. So you know, it was, the first album was entirely instrumental, which I think is surprised a lot of people. Yes, it was, yeah. And, and was it quite jazzy? Yeah, it was the jazzy. We, we took the elements of the jazz and uh, uh, backing up the uh, the other groups that were singing the Soul Town stuff, uh, Motown. Motown stuff. And we created that that sound. So you had a couple of hits in the U.S., but they didn't translate across um, the world. They didn't weren't successful here in the U.K., for example. But you had two hits in the U.S., and then things sort of went the wrong way. Yeah, we had, uh, in the early days, there was an album called Good Times, and we had uh, Cool and the Gang, Live at the Sex Machine. Uh, we had, uh, uh, and then we did a lot of singles like Funky Man, Funky Granny. It wasn't until, it wasn't until we put together the Wild and Peaceful album, right. which had Hollywood Swinging, Jungle Boogie, and Funky Style. So that was really you finding the Cool and the Gang sound. Yeah, we finally had created our sound. I mean, um, we were more, our sound was still horn driven, but they're like in Hollywood Swinging, Ricky West, he did the vocal on that. And we would do a lot of chant stuff, and, uh, Jungle Boogie and funky stuff. And, um, and that was a big album for us, actually. You know, we had, uh, see, Hollywood Swinging was top five, and Jungle Boogie was top five. Brilliant. And funky stuff was number one R and B. So for you were about on your way at this weeks. point. You were you were you were actually getting some recognition. We were on the move. Yeah, you were yeah. on the move. Yeah. But the irony is though, disco came along and the whole Saturday Night Fever thing came along. And look, there's no better records to dance to than Cool and the Gang records. I mean, you invented the best records to dance to, but you didn't do very well during the disco period. No, it was this anti-disco uh, movement. But uh, um, we were uh, very successful with our record company. To get on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Right, you were on there, of course yeah, you were. Yeah, with yeah, one song on there. Yeah, yes. Open yes. Sesame. Yes. And Open Sesame, we were trying to be commercial, but we still had to keep our identity. Because if you listen to the horn lines on Open Sesame, it was like you change the beat to swing, you would be swinging. Right. You know, right. and a lot of groups didn't even dare to play that song, you know, and even in the cover band, because of what the horns were doing. Right. The horns was our singers. But, yeah. But did you not feel, though, at some point you were sort of slightly losing the sound because you were trying to become a disco band, and that wasn't really what you are? Yeah, because we did this thing, Everybody's Dancing, and yeah. it was heavy, you know, danceable. We still had the horns thing moving, but yeah. So we, um, we, uh, we made, this is how we made the change. We were on the road with the Jackson Five at the time, and the uh, uh, the producer of the tour was a guy by the name of Dick Griffey, who later on had Solar Records. Right. Okay. So Dick saw us. He said, 
you guys are doing great on the tour. But you know what I think you guys need? We said, what, Dick? I think you need a lead singer. I said, lead singer? So we thought about, yeah, you might be right, because uh, the Commodores had Lionel Richie, Earth, Wind & Fire, had Philip Bailey and Maurice White, and some of our songs you can sing with, you know, yeah. just didn't have a lead singer. Right. And that's, so you thought that was a changing point? That was a changing so point. So you hired James J.T. Taylor. Right. And that was a, a very pivotal moment. You also changed your producer. Right. To Yamir Diodalo. Yes. Yeah. And those two changes actually then made Cool Again just go mega. Right. Well, Diodalo says us. Actually, J.T. Uh, was the only guy we really auditioned. Uh, yeah, and then he got the job because uh, when he came into the studio, a House of Music back in uh, New Jersey, uh, my brother, uh, Khalid, who writes a lot of the stuff, he said, let me hear you sing something. And then he said, uh, he played some jazz progressions. JT kind of flowed with that. He played some funk stuff, and JT flowed with that. He said, hey, you're the guy. We're going with that you. easy? Yeah. That was so easy. you signed him straight away? I signed him straight away. Now... My wife and I was hanging out in New York during that time at Studio 54, a regime, some of the uh, clubs over there. And we realized that uh, in the weekends, it was ladies' night. So I went back to the guys. We are in the studio working on the album with JT and the new Cool and the Gang Sound. I said, I got a great idea. They said, what? I said, ladies' night. Huh. My brother said, that's interesting, ladies' night. I said, yeah, I mean, they do ladies' night all over the world. Every weekend is ladies' night. And that's when we came up and put together it ladies' night. It was that easy. It was that easy. So that album was a huge album. You had two big hits on that, Too Hot and, of course, Ladies' Night. And right. this was really, Cool and the Gang now really, really taking off. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Dear Dollar said one thing to us. She said, listen, now, you have a lead singer now. So you gotta back off some of the jazz licks. Right. And we said, what? We said, yeah, you gotta make, so you room, you gotta make room for the singer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why it's your ladies night, there's a sparse on, but it worked. And Dio knew exactly where, and he's a jazz guy. We figured, oh, we got Dio we're gonna get more jazz. So he said, uh-uh, no, we're not going that way. You have a lead singer now, so you got to make room for the so singer. So he gave you good direction. The thing about JT is JT too has got tremendous warmth, really great warm vocals, and you think which I think added so much to the band. Yeah, yeah. They never heard us with a lead singer. No, right. Yeah, and that definitely did. Yeah. yeah. So that album sold over a million copies. Yeah. And Ladies' Night was the first hit in the UK, and that was right. I think the first time that Cool and the Gang really made a big impact in Europe. Okay. Oh. And we, I mean, I remember hearing Ladies' Night for the first time and thinking, wow, who is this band? This is Private Lives, I'm Paul Robinson. My guest is Cool from Cool and the Gang. After that came Celebration. Although Ladies' Night had uh, Too Hot on there, that was another big too one Too Hot for was us. a big hit, bigger hit in the US than it was in Europe. Okay. I don't know why. It's yeah. funny, isn't it, actually, let's ask you about that, because you look at your singles and some have been bigger in the UK and some have been bigger in the US. The same songs don't necessarily do the same charting mm -hmm. in, the two, in, the two, in Europe and in the US. Yeah. But after that, the next big hit was, of course, the celebration. The celebration. And like I said, we were uh, celebrating the fact that uh, we turned our career around. We, we, we survived the disco is dead. Syndrome. <laughs> celebrate is so much more than the song. Celebrate's now become an anthem. It's yes. you know it's used everywhere for celebrations all over the world. I mean, what a brilliant idea. 
Well, it was a celebration for us. Yeah, we were celebrating. And one part of the ladies and I had a, a party, but come on, let's all celebrate this show night tonight. My brother took that song, that hook from Ladies Night, and came up with Celebration. He played the track for me. It had that kind of down home. Remind you, sitting on the porch from Grandma and Grandpa rocking in the rocking chair. Down, 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 Yahoo! <laughs> it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, look, it was a mega, mega hit. Yeah. Yeah, and still is today. And, so, and look, it gets played on the radio the whole time. And it's been used in all sorts of things. I mean, you used it in the 1980 World Series, the Super Bowl, the NBA <sighs> Championship. This became an institution, this song. I don't know if you knew this. It was played in the space station when the astronauts got out one morning. Oh, really? They were playing Celebration. Oh, wow. Well, that yeah. must have made you very proud. Yeah, that was in cyberspace. <laughs> that, I mean, when, when you wrote Celebration, you obviously had no idea it was going to be as big as it was. No idea, because Lazy Night was just so big. Yeah. And, and uh, Celebration was inspiration because of the fact that we were able to turn our career around. Yeah, yeah I mean, back before that came about, and uh, the thing with Ladies Night and everything, people didn't know, say, are you guys still working? Are you guys still together as a band? Yes, we are. And we turned around and then we ran into the next decade, you know. Now what's amazing about you guys is you were formed in 1964. This big period of success starts in 1979. So you had 15 years of really learning your craft and, and you know, really refining the Cool and the Gang sound. That's dedication. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Even uh, after the uh, Wild and Peaceful album, we had a you know, Light, of, uh, Light of Worlds album, was the album, uh, Summer Madness. The Rocky movie, Sylvester Stallone was laying down on the couch and getting ready to, about to deal with this fight he's getting ready to have. And what comes up? Summer Madness. Summer Madness. <laughs> yeah. How do, you keep, how do you keep the band's morale and your motivation going when you know, you've, you've worked for so many years to get your big moment? I mean, 15 years is a long time to stay focused, stay together, and then it all happens you know, 15 years later. Well, you know, again, um, I think that we, we, we give a lot of credit to our fans, you know, because they've been kind of like an up and down uh, battle for us, you know, but you know, the fans are always there, even if it was just territorial or universal. You know, the fans always supported us, and we always uh, tried to be true to what we were about and coming up with things that, um, on titles that we experienced, like Ladies' Night. George Brown, too hot is the real situation. He was 17, fell in love, and then high school sweetheart. But things didn't work out too well, you know. So um, I would say, and then our parents. Our parents told us, always stick together. You know, as a family, you know, uh, I mean, my brother was my brother in the band. But whenever the times got hard, we, we, we stuck together. We didn't, we didn't give up. We, you we were just a kept moving. Yeah, we kept moving. Well, the next song I want to play is Jones versus Jones, which was a, a big hit in the UK, actually a bigger hit in the UK than it was in the US. That's 17, interesting. 17 in the UK, 39 in the US. But it's all over the radio here. That's interesting because Jones versus Jones was about written by George Brown, the major writer. It was uh, after Too Hot. They broke up, and then came Jones versus Jones. Here, come, here comes the attorney. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, one thing you be sure of is the attorney's the one who always wins in any legal suit. They're the ones <laughs> that always do okay. So was that acrimonious then, the, uh, the legal process? No, no, okay. no, they just broke up. They just it. broke up, that was okay. it. Let's, 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 not have, let's not sue each other, All right. whatever. But that, well, that's when uh, 
Yeah, uh, George, the, the so-called Jones, but it's a Jones. And it, but it's such a cool song. I mean, it's such a really it's cool, smooth, smooth yeah. song. But it's about, you know, a mm-hmm. breakup. Yeah, it's about a breakup. They broke up, man. They got too hot and they had to get out of there. <laughs> Private Lives with Paul Robinson. My guest is Cool from Cool and the Gang. That's, this is Private Lives. Big success now. You're, you're on the road, I guess, a lot. How are you managing that with your families and all the other commitments? Well, I mean, uh, most of my, I got grandchildren now. and uh, Surely not. You're far too young. Uh, yeah. You're looking but good, I, man. But I have to say, I lost my wife a year ago. I'm sorry to. And, uh, 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 um, you know, she became like my partner as well, because we started a company called uh, Just Cool Enterprises. And we were doing various things for, for kids, uh, Cool Kids Foundation that she started. She had another organization called Dream Stars. It was like the American Idol with young talent. I wanted to get up and do something. You know, so, but I mean, but our, our families uh, definitely have been very supportive over the years. And you've done stuff too to encourage kids to go to school by giving tickets out. Which is yeah. a lovely idea. We did one called Cool to Stay in School. Cool to Stay <laughs> in School. And did it work? It, it worked. Matter of fact, uh, we did 42 cities with uh, Cherry Coke. And... One of the cities that we went to, a group came up and said, hey, we're doing good in school. Okay, we used to meet the children um, uh, before the show. And uh, we want to sing something for you in uh, a cappella. I said, what? So they started singing. And my cousin said, hey, those guys sound great. So we brought them to New York. You know who that group uh, was? Color Me Bad. Color me bad. And they yes. had that song, I want to sex you up. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I remember at the BBC we had some trouble with that initially, but we did play Yeah, I guess so. We were a bit, we were a bit <laughs> worried at one point. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we had Color Me Bad. We discovered Pink. You know Pink? Pink, was, yes, They were yes. discovered by us also. Yeah. The Fuji's. Fuji's, yes. It all came to the cool good, game good, camp. Good bands. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good bands. So, um, next song I want to play is, um, I think, probably the one that you cannot possibly sit down to. You know, I defy any human being to sit down when Get Down On It is on the radio or played in the club. This is just such an amazingly brilliant song. I love this song. Oh, yeah. My brother came up with the idea, uh, idea with that whole Get Down On It. You know, it was all during that period of celebration and that album and the album that came after that. Well, my, a guy came up to my brother. He says, he said, you ever listen to Bob Marley? He said, yeah. Listen to Bob Marley a little more. My brother said, okay. So he was inspired to write Get Down On It from reggae. From really? Yeah, from the Bob Marley. It's not obvious. I mean, It's, it's not got, obvious, It's not no. obvious, no. No, but the group, dun, 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 you know, and and people, it was hard to believe that you got, you pulled that from Bob Marley. That's a great story. I would never have known that. Yeah, yeah, it came from Bob Marley. Get down on it. And and it, it is sort of disco in a way, isn't it? Because it's so dancing. It's both. Yeah, it's both. Yeah. You're now, you know, obviously very successful and the band are doing very well. How, was your, how did your life change? Did you, did you buy a bigger car? Did you buy a bigger house? Did you have first class seats on the plane? Actually, my house in New Jersey, I've been to that house for 35 years. Same house. But it's the home of Thomas Edison. Oh, electric light bulb man. Yeah. The Thomas, Thomas Edison. The Thomas Edison. He has a laboratory right outside, it's called Llewellyn Park. 
Which is, this is the British name too, right? It's British. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Called Llewellyn Park. And uh, I've been there for, for 35 years. I just recently got a, a second home down in Florida, uh, down in uh, uh, down there with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, who's making all the money. <laughs> I, I worked for the Walt Disney Company for a number oh, of years. Oh, you know what I'm yes, talking I about? Did, yeah, yes. I'm in Orlando also. Okay, so you're in Orlando as well. So um, the, the Thomas Edison house. Were, were there any Thomas Edison uh, artifacts around the house? Any clues it was Thomas Edison's house? Well, I mean, um, you know, uh, like every now and then they let people come in to visit the house. But I was told, I don't know, I have to do more research on that, that his house was part of the slave trade, that sometimes the slaves would stay in that house. That's not Secretly. So Secretly. No. Secretly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was uh, looking out for it. Looking out for um, now, before Christmas, uh, we had Midgeur as a guest, and uh, he was talking about um, Band-Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas, and I think you are the only US band to appear on that record and, and he says the day was pretty chaotic when they were trying to set it up they realized that Ultravox and the Boomtown Rats was never enough and they got Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet but how did they attract you to be on Band-Aid? Well we were on the same label with Bob Geldof and we were in town we were touring around the UK and uh, the record company came to us and said listen uh, they're doing a song uh, I forgot it was Friday morning or Saturday morning about the uh, the starvation and the uh, problems that they were having in Ethiopia, Ethiopia, and they asked us, "Would you like to be a part of?" We said, "Absolutely." So, what do we do? We said, "Well, you got to be in the studio early uh, Saturday or Sunday morning, whatever it was." And we had all these great artists that was there. Oh, it was know. a who's who of pop and rock. Oh yeah, feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time again. It was great. It was great. And number one record. How was it on the day, though? I mean, because you had to do the whole thing in one day. You had all these different artists. How did you know which bit you were going to sing, and how did you get everybody aligned? Well, we did know. We were happy to be there. We knew that uh, Bob Geldof, the producer, and uh, uh, he might have been the writer who it was. We knew we had to all blend in. You know, I mean, you had, what, Bono was there, too? Bono yeah, was there, I mean, yeah. You, you had all these great artists, and everybody had a little part. Yeah, no, it must have been amazing to be part of that. It was great. It was great. And it, it at the time, we didn't know that that record was going to do what it did. No, I mean, it was a huge record, and of yeah. course, it then produced Live Aid. Yeah, Live Aid came after that. And, and yeah. Live Aid was an amazing success. That was amazing as well. Concerts in the US and in the UK at the same time. Yeah. Well, we're going to fast forward now to um, Joanna. Again, a big hit. And in fact, it's the only song that had the same chart position in the UK and the US. Oh, okay. And it was number two in both countries. This is a very smooth, melodic, beautiful song. The guy who came up with the concept of that idea, he wanted to write a song about his mother. And he was calling it Dear Ma. And we're in the studio with Dear Dalo and uh, uh, our, uh, our engineer. And so JT was trying to sing a hook to Dear Ma on the track. It wasn't working. So... I don't know if it was a Diodalo or one of the other guys in the band. Why don't you try uh, somebody's name, a lady's name? I said, well, we'll come up with something. Well, let's try Joanna. Did you know a Joanna? No. Did you know a Joanna? It was no, a fictional no. name. No, it just, it just came up with that because yeah. Dear Mom wasn't working. And he got in there and started singing, Joanna. Wow. Magic. <laughs> That's how, that's how it happened. And that's how it was. Yeah. And have, have Joannas around the world reacted to that song? Because it's such a beautiful song. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when that record was out, it was the most played record 
in, in the US. The Joanna, most played. At that time, for that time period. For, for radio, because it's a brilliant radio record, isn't it? Oh yeah, people say, oh, they went all the way pop now. <laughs> yeah, they crossed over, then they crossed way over. <laughs> but it was still the cool sound, wasn't it? It was, yeah, still, it was still that sound. sound. It was still, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. You're still touring, you're still gigging, you're still recording. I mean, you're, you're just uh, a glutton for punishment, aren't you? Well, we do over 100 shows a year. 100? Uh, yeah. But you know what it is? I, um, over the years, from when we started, the original members, to the guys that we have now, I got some guys been with me for 30 years, 20 years, uh, and most recently, like Walt, uh, Walt, uh, Walt Anderson been with me for uh, uh, 10 years. We had a record album called uh, 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 Too Sexy. Uh, yes. Another one we had, you know. Uh, that he did with my son called Royalty, with my uh, uh, my son Prince Hakeem. He's a writer producer. He he travels with us from right. time to time also. So and, and, do you, and do you write when you're on the road? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. We come up with different ideas on the road. Yeah. So you told me about a couple of inspirations. Some songwriters have said to me that they they like to get a title. I mean, you, you got Joanna and that fitted for that song, but sometimes they like to find a title like you know name this restaurant maybe, and then that inspires a song. Do you do that? Yeah. That happens a lot. I mean, uh, when we first went to uh, Trinidad, we, uh, funny thing, it was during the time they ended up having a revolution in Trinidad. We had, we had to stay there for two weeks. And out of that, we came up with Caribbean Festival. I don't know if you heard that song called Caribbean Festival. I have. We came up with that. While you were over there? While we were over there. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and with 100 gigs a year, how do you manage that? Because you're going from hotel room to plane to hotel room, you know. I mean, it's quite tiring, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're, you're a young guy, but you're not 21 anymore. Well, yeah, it is. It is. But I mean, because we, um, we love what we do. And we break it up. Sometimes, you know, um, my brother might not come out on the road. Sometimes he will. And sometimes Dennis comes out and sometimes he don't. But we, we have about 13 to 14 people. So it's almost like a, a soccer team or NBA team. Sometimes you're on the bench and sometimes well, you're yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, if he can't make it, all right, call Lewis Taylor. Or call Shelly, you know, and they all know the music. So that's important. They all, it's like they fit right in. So it's a team, it's a family. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you ever forget which city you're in? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I wake up in the morning, late. Which bed am I in? <laughs> yeah, and you say, oh, I gotta be downstairs. Especially when you don't get a wake up call. Oh, yeah, yeah that's terrible. You, oh, you don't that, get a yeah. wake up call and yeah. it's late. You look around, look at the car. Wow, they didn't call me. They jump up out of the bed, running downstairs. Your, your tour manager said, "All right, Mr. Bell, where are you? I mean, I'm his boss, but hey, we got we got to make this flight." <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look, the discipline and the, the hard work is really appreciated. But your passion is just there. I mean, you obviously just love what you do. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we had some great fun. I mean, and our late year, just five years ago, uh, we did uh, 42 shows with Van Halen. And the people said, what? Well, Van Halen's an unusual person to be yeah, Very different music to that's you. That's what they said. Van Halen, how in the world? Who came up with that idea? It was David Lee Roth. Oh. He saw us at the Glastonbury Music Festival. At that time, that day, he had U2 was on there, Coldplay, part of the big rock group. And he said, man, you guys rocked it. So I called uh, Eddie and Alex, said, I found the 
the opening act. He said, you're not a support act. You're an open act for us. Quite and right. He said, who? He said, cool on the guy. Daddy, what you been smoking? <laughs> I mean, I had even out. I mean, the, the, the David Lee Roth. He said, man, I just saw them guys rock that audio. He said, and it was about him coming back for their 20 year, I think, celebration. So he said, this is what I want. So he told me to listen. In the 80s, you guys had celebration, the ladies and I, and we had jump. He said, back when we first started, we used to play funky stuff and Hollywood swinging out in the clubs in LA. He said, 60% of our audience are ladies. And he said, um, so let's go out and have a party. Fantastic. And when we did the shows, them, them ladies, uh, he was right. When we got the ladies' night, you get that on. You see, everybody loves ladies' night, even Van Halen. Oh, yeah. And yeah. music is music, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then we turned around, and Kid Rock saw it, and then we ended up doing 10 shows with Kid Rock. Then Dave Matthews' band. It just, you know. Isn't that great? All it these was, different genres coming together. You know, it's amazing. Oh, yeah, it was, definitely. Cool. It's been a complete honor and pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. From East London to the whole of London on Podcast Radio, we are East London Radio. Thanks to Robert Cool of Cool and the Gang and Les McEwen of the Bay City Rollers, who together dominated the British Top 40 in the 1970s and 1980s, and are both still on the road working and loving playing to UK and London audiences. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. There'll be more Private Lives at the same time next week. What's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search the Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.